if you're making notes and you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it God's Grand Design for Marriage. Now, to buy way of context, so we're all on the same page in terms of what's going on here in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, as you will know by now, are all about who we are in Christ. The whole point is that God chose us, he saved us, he reconciled us, he redeemed us, he adopted us. Without question, heaven is our home. We have been received the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And so chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about God's grace towards us, who we are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, then, are quite different. They really look at how we are to respond and live in light of Christ. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, who we are in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, how we respond to Christ, how we respond to what he's done and his finished work. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received. And then he really unpacks that for three chapters, from chapter 4, verse 2, through to chapter 5, verse 21. Paul looks at the new life, how we're to live, new standards for us as Christians, new new ideas and new understandings of how we're to live in a life worthy of Jesus Christ. Well, we come now to the final section, which is chapter 5, verse 22, through to the end of chapter 6, where Paul addresses new relationships. How should relationships look for a Christian? How should relationships look for an individual who has been saved and redeemed and forgiven and adopted into the very family of God? And Paul begins by addressing marriages, husbands and wives. So let's read from verse 22 through to the end of verse 33. Let's be addressed by God as God's word goes forward. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to marriage today, and as we gather around your design for marriage, Lord, would we be affected? Lord, whether we be single or married, this text is written for us. You want to communicate something to every individual in this room 
regarding marriage. And so, Lord, would our ears be attentive as we discuss created order, as we discuss your divine plan, as we discuss the purpose and the pattern. Lord, would you give us grace to hear? Lord, would our pattern for marriage not be based on culture, but would it be based on your holy word? You are good. Amen. You know, in Britain, one of my uh, favourite shows, which I think is on UK TV now over here, uh, was called Grand Designs. Grand Designs, you like that? Yes, quality, and it? it's absolutely true story as well. It's absolutely quality. Grand Designs is just these people with seemingly loads of money that just build incredible houses. And so I watched this one that was a bit strange, but they wanted to build, the purpose of this house was to build an organic house. So they didn't want to use any synthetic material at all. It all had to be natural material. So somehow they managed to build a roof out of like grass and mud and it didn't leak in rain. It was very complicated and very complex, but somehow they did it. And this whole house was designed to sit on the side of a mountain so that you couldn't even really see it was there. It was very peculiar, but, but very clever. And this was the type of things that grand designs come up with. I was a big fan of the really posh ones where there were just architectural genius stuff going on. I remember one in particular that had a, a staircase, which would be horrendous for our kids, but a staircase that was made out of glass, and, and it just had holes in the wall where the glass went into as they stepped it up, and then they put lights in the glass, and I thought, yes, something very quality about it. Just that it was really clever. There's just these different ideas and different things they had going on in these grand designs. But one thing that was interesting, whether they were building organic houses or really posh houses, they all started the same. All grand designs needed a purpose, and they all needed a plan. They all needed to understand what is the purpose of this house that we're building, and then what's the plan? What's it going to look like? How are we actually going to build this? What is this going to look like? So we know what it wants to do, but how are we actually going to get there and make this purpose a reality? Well, what we have before us here in Ephesians 5 verse 22 through 33, is God's grand design for marriage. And what we have here in particular is God's grand purpose and plan for marriage. And in studying this text this week, I'd have to say I have been, I've been overwhelmed by it. I've been overwhelmed by it in terms of how I need to change. And I've been overwhelmed as to what an excellent wife I have. In, my, in Emma. But two things quickly became apparent as I started to study this text this week. Number one, there is simply no way I'm going to be able to do it in one week. You know, I'd hoped and planned that, you know what, let's just bang this, crank this one out. We'll do marriages this week. We'll do parenting the week after. We'll do employment the week after that. Bingo, we're done in three weeks. But it quickly became apparent there is no possible way that I'm going to be able to do this text in one week. This is the largest statement in the whole of God's word on marriage. There are some very specific and important details in here. And having never taught on marriage or biblical manhood and womanhood in this local church, I think it's very important we slow on this and understand what is God's purpose and pattern then for marriage, for biblical manhood and womanhood within the context of the home and the union of marriage. And so I quickly became aware, instead, I'm not going to be able to do it in one week. It's going to need three. And I also particularly became aware of this. The preaching of this text is going to have to unapologetically be more doctrinal in emphasis than purely practical and applicational. You see, doctrine matters. 
And it's so important as we understand God's design for marriage, what his pattern and purpose is for marriage. You see, there's no shortage of how-to books out there on marriage. They're everywhere. There's a lot of Christian books on marriage, how-to, how this should work and how it functions. And yet, sadly, so many of those Christian books, in my opinion, have a distinct shortage and a distinct deficiency of doctrine. They're able us to paint over cracks and they're able us to work out how different things function and how they might function well. But they distinctly lack doctrine. They distinctly lack any reference at all to God's purpose and pattern for marriage. And that concerns me. That deeply concerns me. Because doctrine matters. Sinclair Ferguson says, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. I believe he's right, because doctrine matters. Bruce Mill follows that up. He says, why then is study of doctrine so vital? Firstly, as a matter of plain fact, every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God, as our understanding of God and his ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book he has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, and what God wants of us, we need to study Scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. Listen, at every point, right living begins with right thinking. Right living begins begins with right thinking. That is the same truth that must resound in our ears as we look at marriage. Right living always comes forth from right thinking. Doctrine then matters. If we're going to understand and appreciate and benefit from marriage, if we're going to be able to support and prepare for marriage, if you are single, if we are going to be able to participate in marriage, and do so effectively for the glory of God if you are married, then we must, first of all, understand God's grand design for marriage. We must understand doctrine, because right thinking always then produces right living. But incorrect thinking nearly all the time produces incorrect living. God has a grand design for marriage. That's what we're looking at today. And so for the next three weeks, I want us to look at two things. I want us to look at God's purpose for marriage, as biblically defined, what is marriage all about? And then secondly, God's pattern for marriage. How does this play out? How was this created to play out in our lives? How did God position man and woman together? And why did he position man and woman together in a way that they can understand and appreciate and benefit from marriage? How does it work? So the way we're going to look at it is this week we're going to look at God's purpose in particular. I then want us to look very briefly at the end of this message in some very broad brush things of God's pattern. Next week we're going to address the men and you're going to get a hard time and the women are going to go, yes. And then the week after we're going to address the women and the men are going to go, yes. So, you know, so don't get too excited next week, ladies, when we start addressing the boys, okay, because it's your turn the week after. But this is important. So number one, let's start with God's purpose for marriage, God's purpose for marriage, and let's turn to verse 31 and 32. This is where Paul nails out God's purpose for marriage. This is what he says. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In so many ways, I feel inadequate in my vocabulary and in my passion to appropriately communicate to you the significance of what is being taught here. Because this is profound. This is profound detail of God's divine purpose for marriage. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2 verse 24, a statement about the first marriage in history. And in verse 32 then, he interprets that statement in light of the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is truly profound. See, verse 32, he, he begins it with this idea of a profound mystery. He says, this mystery is profound. We're talking within the context of marriage about a profound mystery. Do you view your marriage as a profound mystery? Or is it just something, yeah, it just, it just makes sense? Because it's biblically defined, there is a degree of profound mystery within the context of marriage. And yet what we need to understand is the Greek word in mystery, mysterion, is very different to what we now presently talk about it. So when we talk about mystery now in our culture, right, in English, we often think of mystery as something that is difficult or impossible to comprehend, right? And we say, oh, it's just a mystery. So when we lose the car keys in our house and they go missing for 16 weeks, we decide it's just a mystery. We have no idea where they've gone. It's incomprehensible. We don't know what's going on. I was reading in the, in the paper this week, the Daily Mail, just just a quality paper. I haven't, I've only been here a year, so I haven't quite transitioned to Australian papers just yet. So I was reading in the Daily Mail that there's an illusionist in the UK called Dynamo, and he decided to walk across the tent, walk on water. And I've seen the pictures, and you think, how does he do that? Now, obviously, it's an illusion, but you've got all the people rowing up across the Thames and across the bridge, and there he is, walking on water. And you're like, um, how is he doing that? I have no idea. It's a mystery. I have no idea how he's doing this. You know, pastors have one of the only jobs in the entire world where you're able to say it is indeed a mystery. And I, I love that about pastoring. If you take your car to a mechanics and you say, listen, it is squeaking, and you take it into the mechanics place, into the garage, and you say, it is, it is squeaking, and he looks at it all day and charges you $300 and says, I have no idea, it's a mystery. You fire him. But as a pastor, you're able to say, I have no idea, it's a mystery. The God's made that, you know, he's, he's sealed that up from us. But in the English, that idea of mystery being incomprehensible and impossible to understand is different to what Paul is saying here. When Paul is using the word mystery here in the Greek, he is talking about something that was once hidden but has now been revealed. So he is referring to a profound mystery that has been hidden for years, centuries, but now has been revealed. So look again, listen. What he is saying here with great profundity is this. Listen up. In the Old Testament times, As Moses was penning Genesis, Moses did not in any way fully understand what marriage was all about. He didn't. As he discussed Adam and Eve and as he talks about Adam and Eve, and as the Old Testament guys, the Israelites, walk around talking about marriage, they had no real idea what God's God's grand design for marriage was all about. They had no idea. But this profound mystery has now been revealed. 
Since the personal work of Jesus Christ, the grand mystery of marriage has now been revealed. And it is this. Marriage, as intended by God, is designed to reveal the glorious relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Did you get it? That's what he says there. Listen up. Marriage, as intended by God, is designed to reveal the glorious relationship between Christ and the church. That's profound. Moses didn't know that. King David didn't know that. Jacob didn't know that. Isaac didn't know that. You know that because we've come after the personal work of Jesus Christ. And the profound mystery that was once hidden has now been revealed is that all marriages between men and women are designed by God's grace with one distinct purpose in mind, to reveal in their relationship the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the local church. See, the essence and purpose of marriage is really not about us. That's important. Make a note of that. The essence and purpose of marriage is not primarily about you and I. The essence and purpose of marriage is all about a picture and a parable that husband and wife are playing out before God and before the world of Christ's relationship with the church, with his bride. You know, this is a concept that is strangely foreign in our culture, don't you think? I doubt if we rocked up to Hornsby and stuck a microphone in front of people's mouths and said, could you just tell me what the purpose of marriage is? That many would be turning around and saying, oh, no problem at all. Yes, it's designed by God to reveal Christ's relationship with the church. I don't think you're going to be hearing that too much. And I did indeed put this to, to a test just a few weeks ago. I've had to do a marriage celebrant course, which has been a test for me. Um, it's a test of my sanctification. And it's a test of my bad attitudes because in the UK I've married about 15 couples and I arrive in Australia and they say, huh, counts for nothing here, do you marry a celebrant course? And you think, that stinks, but you have to get on with it. So I had to go into, um, into the centre of Sydney and I did five days on a marriage celebrant training course. It was a nightmare. I had to learn about small businesses. I had to learn about, you know, what do you do if a photocopier breaks down? I don't care what but but you have to know to pass your test. And so so I did all these different things. And at one point the, the guy who was teaching us says, okay, well here's a few quick fire questions for you then. What is marriage? Now oh, I had a mischievous moment. Now the real answer is this the the what is marriage? Well, according to the Celebrant Authority Monitor, what the real answer is, well, Section 46.1 of the Marriage Act says that marriage, according to the law in Australia, is the union of a man and woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into life. Thank you very much. You know, that is what the real answer is in Australia. That is the answer he wanted, but that was the distinct answer that I was not going to give him in that moment. So the question comes, what is marriage? Nobody answered so. What is marriage? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, marriage is a gift given to us by God to reveal Christ's distinct relationship with the church for his glory. Tumbleweed. <laughs> it was a tumbleweed moment in that room. They're looking at me as if to say, are you an idiot? And sensing that, I just said, I'm a pastor. Now, they, they thought that was probably synonymous with idiot, but we worked at it. We worked at it, and it certainly, we certainly ended up with a few conversations over lunch that day 
and it was a lot of fun. But the interesting thing was they had never heard that. And they're marriage celebrants. They're people that are marrying people in Australia. They had never, ever, ever heard that marriage is a gift given to us by God to reveal Christ's relationship with the church. Never heard of it. It is strangely foreign in our culture, but you know what? Sadly, I believe this is a concept all too foreign in so many churches as well. So many Christians, no idea, never seen that in the Bible, never grasped that, never understood that. And so listen, it is vital that you understand as a pastor who loves you dearly, you must understand this. Number one, God's purpose for marriage is that it is a gift from God through which a husband and wife get to reveal Christ's relationship with the church, his glorious bride. We're his bride. The church are the bride of Jesus Christ. And our marriage, my marriage with Emma, is meant to in some way to reveal that to the church, to the world, to our communities, the distinct and important relationship between Jesus Christ and the church for his glory. Now, there are indeed many implications of this purpose for marriage. I haven't got time to go through them all, but I want to go through a few. And many of these I have learned from C.J. Mahaney, and the guy who leads Sovereign Grace, a dear brother and good friend. And he has, he's helped me with these different things before, so I've just gone back to my research and I'm going to pass the fruit on to you. Number one, what's the implication then of marriage being all about to revealing the glorious relationship between Christ and the church? Well, number one, marriage, number, number one implication, marriage does not have a secular origin, but a divine origin. Marriage does not have a secular origin, but a divine origin. We live in a culture where increasingly people are living together and where divorce has become increasingly rife. I think our divorce rates officially are probably dropping, but the reason for that is because people aren't bothering getting married in the first place. And so increasingly, the the question that you get asked is, well, why bother getting married at all? Why not just live together? And then if you do get married, well, why not then just get divorced? I didn't like him or it didn't work out or I just think we fell out of love. And you think, well, how how have we got here? See, when I was a kid, I remember being in a school where I think like, I think maybe one person in my class's parents had got divorced, maybe maybe tops. And then you get to the next generation, your kids, and you realise, particularly in the UK, probably nearly half of the people have been through divorce. And you're like, man... And then the other half aren't even necessarily married anyway. And you realize this is, this is very distorted from what the Bible paints a picture of for us. But I can understand it. And I can understand why our culture is either not bothering to get married or just thinking his divorce is too easy. I can understand it because the divine purpose is not seen. So then why bother? But it's very important for us as Christians that we understand that marriage has not got a secular origin. Marriage wasn't made in Australia wasn't made in the United Kingdom. Marriage was made by God in Genesis 1 and 2. It has a divine origin, not a secular origin. Number two, marriage is meant to be God-centered and not man-centered or need-centered. Get it? Marriage is meant to be God-centered 
and not man-centered or need-centered. Listen, I'm not denying that there aren't legitimate felt needs or legitimate real needs that go on in the life of husband and wife. And I think there are those needs. And I think there are both felt needs and legitimate needs that go on within the context of a husband and wife relationship. And we'll be looking at a few of them over the next few weeks. And yet, it is not and must not be where we begin our discussion on marriage. We must begin our discussion on marriage with the purpose of God in Scripture. And when you do that, you very quickly discern that, you know what? Marriage isn't really about me. It's not about my needs. It's not about what I need to get out of it. It's not about all the things that I want to take from my marriage. It is actually all about God. It is all about Him. It is all about me seeking to change in my marriage. Why? Primarily so that God, God, that Christ's relationship with His church can be increasingly revealed in my marriage. It's not about me. It's not about what am I going to get out of this. I want to change and I want you to change so that it works out better for me. It's primarily I want to grow in our marriage for the glory of God because we will be able to reveal Christ and the church better to the community if we do that. Do you see? Marriage. If we understand it's been given by God primarily to reveal Christ's relationship with the church, you then quickly understand that marriage is not me-centered or need-centered. It's God-centered. It's all about him. Mary Pry, a lady who I wouldn't necessarily recommend to you on every quote, but in this quote I sincerely recommend it to to you. She says, Since marriage should be God-centered, not me-centered, our main care must be to honor God's holy name and to fulfill his holy purpose. God created marriage not first and foremost to meet our wishes, but to advance his kingdom. Is that profound to you or what? Your marriage was not designed by God primarily to fulfill your needs. It wasn't. It was designed primarily by God to advance his kingdom. So that as people get married and they work out that marriage for the glory of God, taking on their roles in God's pattern of relationships with the glory of God, people on looking would get to see in some shape or form the distinct relationship between Christ and the church, as they view your marriage, as they view things going on in your life. Number three, third implication. Roles and responsibilities in marriage can never be understood until we grasp how Christ relates to the church. Roles and responsibilities in marriage can never be understood until we grasp how Christ relates to the church. It's an obvious implication yet a really, really important one nonetheless. If you are married here and you are trying your best to ensure that your marriage is growing and healthy, I submit to you, if your main job is to reveal Christ and the church, if you don't understand how Christ and the church operate, it's never going to fully happen for you. Our roles are only going to make sense when we realize the husband is called by God to represent Jesus Christ and the wife is called by God to represent the church and in their roles and responsibilities and the way they relate, there's two very different things going on there. It's why it's so important that we study Christ and the church. 
It's why it's so important we spend time in God's word, particularly Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, understanding that it's all about Jesus Christ. He is the star player. He has called the church to himself from every tribe and language and nation. And the church then are gathered around him and enjoy being with him for the glory, representing him. Until you understand the way Christ works with the church and the church respond to Christ, marriage isn't going to fully make sense in how you're able to go about it. Roles and responsibilities in marriage can never be understood until we grasp how Christ relates to the church. Final implication. Marriage is a picture and parable of the relationship between Christ and the church all the way until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is a picture and parable of the relationship between Christ and the church all the way until the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, we see a glorious day to come. And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The day when Jesus Christ, as the groom, returns for his bride, the church. People from all over the world, from tribe and language and nation, that are coming together and they are presented to the groom. A bride that in this world is often in rags and tatters and doesn't look too fantastic, but a bride that on that day will be made pure and undefiled and perfect, and that bride will be united with the groom for all eternity. Do you know what? In that day, all of our marriages are only momentary. So in that day, all of our marriages will come to an end. Because all our marriages were only a shadow and a type. They were only a pointer to the real thing. The primary purpose of marriage to reveal Christ's relationship with the church. On that day when Jesus Christ as the groom returns for his bride, our momentary marriages come to a close. Because they're no longer needed in the same way. They were always pointing to the church's relationship with Jesus. And when that takes place, we're home. And we will want for nothing else. Our marriages are just a shadow of what is to come in our relationship as the church with Jesus, the perfect groom. There's many implications, eh? Of starting to understand God's clear grand design on marriage. And to truly understand God's purpose for marriage, I think, is to be sobered and inspired. I mean, I have felt both of those things at different points during this week. At different points during the week, sometimes I was going upstairs to have a cup of tea with Emma sobered. Other times I was going upstairs to have a cup of tea inspired. I would just be oscillating between these two feelings. It's, I think it's sobering, is it not, to understand, if you are married, to understand that this is the purpose of your marriage. This is why God has blessed you with marriage. This is why God has given you marriage. He has given you marriage because he has seen it in his divine kindness to issue you with the responsibility to reveal the relationship between Christ and the church. That is sobering. I mean, goodness. I had to ask for Emma's forgiveness about 14 times this week as you just communicate in love. I, I don't think I'm doing a very good job of being Jesus to you. I mean, this is, this is profound. I, I, I've just got so much growing to do. In my life as a husband, if I'm going to play my part to reveal Christ to you as people look on, I've just got so much to grow in as a husband and to feel then the responsibility, not only for me, but for all of us, I'm sure, the responsibility given to us by God to reveal the relationship between Christ and the church 
am I the only one sobered by that? Or That is full on, right? You, that, what? That's amazing. That's my responsibility. I wish I'd known that before I got married. Man, this is, this is, this is full on. For all those of you that are engaged, you've got this to look forward to. We'll start marriage prep next week because we've got to get on this. You know, this is a big deal. This is important. This is really important as we stand before the Lord. And so it is sobering, but it is also inspiring, isn't it? And it's inspiring for the same reason. God has called you, if you are married, he's brought you together with somebody who is ideal for you. And he's brought you to that individual and he has brought you to them so that you can reveal Christ's relationship with the church. Through your marriage, you get to reveal Christ in the church. You might look on at your marriage and think, man, life, mine ain't revealing it very well at the minute. Okay, maybe. And maybe we need to help different ones and twos. There's been lots of times in my life when my marriage hasn't been revealing it very well at all. You see, sometimes we, mo- we, we, just, we, we opt out and we start to think, you know what? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I know that's what it's meant to reveal, but mine doesn't, so mine doesn't count. Afraid not. All marriages reveal Christ's relationship with the church. It's just a question of whether your marriage reveals a good relationship or a bad relationship. But all of them reveal it. It's the way it is. It's God's purpose. All marriages reveal Christ in the church. The question for us then, if we're married, is just what type of relationship between Christ and the church do I want to reveal? A good one or a really bad one? Well, God in his grace has given you the gift of marriage, believing wholeheartedly that through his grace you can reveal a good one. He's called you to the task. He'll give you grace to the task. And so number one, God's divine purpose for marriage then is simply that, to reveal Christ's relationship with the church. You got that? Are we good on that? You're not nodding. Are we good on that? Okay, here's a little rule of thumb. When a preacher can, if you can see the preacher, he can see you, okay? So when he says, you know, there's a general rule of thumb. It's a bit like, yeah, another story. Okay, so number two, God's pattern for marriage. I just want to make some brief observations on this before we bring today to a close. So God's purpose for marriage, we're clear on that. God's pattern for marriage then. I'd like you to turn, please, to Genesis chapter 1. It all starts in the beginning, so we must return to the beginning if we are going to understand what's going on. Now, it is evident from our brief survey today on the purpose of marriage The Apostle Paul is drawing on Genesis. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has very clearly been influenced by his study of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And his quote of Genesis 2, 24 is an illustration of that. And so as we finish our time this morning, I, I just want us to examine the data that Paul himself is drawing on. And I want us to look as a church at what is Paul looking at that is leading him both to the purpose and the pattern of marriage. You see, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, three chapters that I'd really, well, I'd really encourage you to study them this week, spend some time in God's Word in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In these three chapters, what we have here is God's original plan prior to the fall of mankind concerning roles for men and women, in particular, husbands and wives. Now, hear every word there prior to the fall. Okay, that's important. Because there's so much, particularly unbiblical feminism out there, 
that says that different roles are wrong. That was part of the fall. Nope. It's Genesis chapter 2. There was no fall then. It's very important that we study what is Paul drawing on. So many times when Paul is talking about biblical headship and roles about manhood and womanhood, both in the church and in the home and in the marriage relationship, he is referring to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Nearly every time he's going back to created order. So we have to do that as well, right? As a local church, we have to look at what are the New Testament writers drawing on. They are drawing on God's created order, his divine order that he has established for our good and for his glory. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking very clearly then at the role of a man and the role of a woman within the context of marriage because they're very, very important. But two things I want us to draw out before we close down today from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And the first is this. Listen. Men and women are equal in value, dignity, and ability to reflect the character of God as image bearers. You get that? Men and women are equal in value, dignity, and ability to reflect the character of God as image bearers. Chapter 1, verse 26. Let's read it together. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God, in verse 26, as a pinnacle and a crescendo of creation, has decided to make man. Male and female. You know, it's the only point actually in the opening scene, the creation scene, where the Godhead are actually discussing things together. All the other creation, they just sort of cracked on with. You know, they just started and pumped these things out and just, you know, let there be light, bang, have a slice of that. You know, they're just getting on with it. But we get to mankind, and now we clearly see the Godhead are in discussion. Okay, guys, let's make something. And let's make something in our own image. They're actually discussing this as the climax and crescendo of all creation. And here's the unmistakable point. As God makes male and female, he makes them equal. Equal in value, equal in dignity, and equal in their ability to reflect the character of God as image bearers. If you are human, which you all are, you are an image bearer of God, both man and woman. Equal in your value of that. Equal in your worth. Equal in your dignity in that. Equal of your ability to truly reflect the character of God in the way you live, either in a biblically masculine way, if you're a fella, or a biblically feminine way, if you're a girl. Okay, That's the way it's meant to function. That's the way it is designed. Because we are created equal in value, dignity, and ability to reflect the character of God. Now, correctly understood, if a local church grasps this and understands this, there's knock-ons for that. There should be no place for racism in a local church. There should be no place for it. It does not belong in the context of any given local church. Why? Because we're equal image bearers of God. It doesn't matter the color of my skin. It makes no difference at all. I am an image bearer of God. You may see somebody in the street that is homeless, 
and, and, and of, a different, of a different cultural origin. And you may think, oh, look at it, it's just pathetic. No, they are an equal image bearer of God to you because they are a human being. They've been created by God to reflect God. That's why we should care for the homeless and orphans because they are image bearers of God. They've been created by God, for God, to be with God. Also, there should be no place for chauvinism in local churches. So men who just think that women are second-class citizens. It's disgusting, it is wrong, and I am passionate that we be a church that understand that we are equal. Men and women, no matter what nation we're from, we are equal in our dignity, we are equal in our worth, we are equal without any question in our ability to reflect God's character. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're created to do. I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate that we understand that we are equal. But I'm also passionate that we are understanding that we are no doubt equal, but also very different. Very different in our roles. Where do we get that from? Genesis chapter 2. Created order. Now, time doesn't permit to read through Genesis chapter 2. I'd encourage you to do it on your own. But here's the thing that is important. No question are men and women made equal in their value, dignity, and ability. No question at all. Genesis chapter 1. It's all there to see. But there is also no question at all that men and women are made profoundly different in their roles. Men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. That's created order. That's the way he made us. Now, it is important that we fight against racism. It is important that we fight against chauvinism. But it is also important that we fight against feminism. The idea that is hatched by females that, you know what, because we have been made equal in value and dignity and ability, stuff it, I'm going to be equal in role as well. No. No, we, we can't do that. And the reality is feminism has seeped into so many churches as well. Men and women, they just do exactly the same roles. No, that cannot be. Because although I am your pastor, that gives me no authority to go beyond Scripture. And Scripture teaches me very clearly in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we are equal in value and dignity, but we are very different in our roles. Very different. God's created it that way. And who am I then? And who are you? And who is anybody else to start altering those roles because we think it feels better and makes us more acceptable to our culture? It is not about being more acceptable to our culture. That's not what we're here for. Jesus was never acceptable to his culture. It's about defending the scriptures and defending what God has pronounced in his scriptures as divine created order. Equal, but different. Very different in our roles. John Piper says it this way. I love it. He says, different, differential roles were not created by the fall, but corrupted by the fall. They were created by God. Don't you love that? Differential roles were not created by the fall. They were corrupted by the fall. They were created by God. God. And so here's the big idea on the pattern. We'll study it more next week and the week after. But here's the big idea. Men and women, within your marriage, you are equal in value, in dignity, in ability to reflect God's character in your life. Both husband and wife are profoundly important to the Lord and equal in those things. But 
Husband and wife are very different in roles. In created divine order, God has given you roles as women and given us roles as men that differ from one another. And we can't go changing that up just because it doesn't work in our culture. We have to go holding on to the scriptures and holding on to the gospel and fighting for truth. If we face opposition for that, bring it on. Because we must go with created order. You know what, folks? If we're going to understand and appreciate and benefit from marriage, if we're going to support and prepare for marriage, if we are going to participate in marriage and do so effectively for the glory of God, then we must first understand God's grand design for marriage. We've got to understand his purpose. His purpose that our marriages would reveal Christ's relationship with the church. And we must understand in a broad brush way that his pattern for that is that we are equal in many, many things, but different. Different in roles. Common purpose, but different in our roles. Christ and the church. Two distinct roles. And so here's my question to finish. Write it down. When all's said and done, here's the thing. Is your present view and where applicable practice of marriage biblical or merely cultural? Is your present view and where applicable practice of marriage biblical or merely cultural? This is important. The divine creator has given us his grand design in Ephesians chapter 5. So let us not just be merely cultural, but let us return to the creator, understanding that my life is about walking in a manner worthy of the call that I've received. And therefore, Lord, what's your design? Spend time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this week. Start praying it through. Think about it. Start meditating on this text, Ephesians 5, 22 to, 23, to 33. That's going to where we read for three weeks. Spend time on it and discern is your pattern purpose for marriage biblical or cultural? My prayer is that we would all make it biblical given a few weeks' time and that God's design for marriage would be what it looks like in our midst. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us in the way you communicate to us in your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is clear. It does not leave us guessing or wondering if what we do in our lives is for your glory or just merely cultural. Lord, thank you for your clarity. And Lord, as we do this study for the next three weeks on marriage, we do so with hearts that desire to live for you, desire to learn from you. Lord, whether these folks be single or married, Lord, thank you that we're family. And so this is a topic for us all. An important topic, if we're single, so that we can prepare and support those that are married. If we are married already, so that we can begin to change. So that we may reflect your design for marriage ever so clearly in our lives. Lord, thank you for your care. Amen.